This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome to The Francis Effect for the fourth week of September 2017. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And as always, I'm here with Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York and is an assistant professor of systematic theology at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. And every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events. And uh, we do that from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Dan, hello. Hey, David. Good to be back. On today's episode, we're going to look at three topics. In the first segment, we're going to look at the this 11th hour effort on the part of the Senate Republicans to put a stake in the heart of the Affordable Care Act. We're going to talk about Graham Cassidy in light of Catholic social teaching. Spoiler alert, call your senators. We're going to be talking next about the recent disinvitations of Father James Martin and Professor M. Sean Copeland from speaking engagements at Catholic colleges. And we're going to finish up the episode by talking about the recent piece by ta Coates in The Atlantic, the first white president, the foundation of Donald Trump's presidency is the negation of Barack Obama's legacy. We also have a special bonus segment for all you friends of Frank. In that segment, we're going to be expanding on our conversation around the disinvitations. In particular, we're going to go in depth about Sean Copeland and her work and how her disinvitation was an especial affront to hospitality and the question of social justice. That content is going to be available to our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to hear it, go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod and become a monthly supporter of the show. And before we get started, we just want to remind you that you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis with an F and an X and the word pod. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. Well, David, yeah, here we are again. Yeah. Dan, how has your week been? My week has been very good. Busy, on the road a lot. You were at St. Bonaventure. Do I have that right? That is correct. I am a 2005 undergrad alum of the illustrious St. Bonaventure University in Western New York, Franciscan University, and it's a great honor to be able to serve my alma mater as a member of the Board of Trustees. So I was back uh, for a board meeting and a number of other really extraordinary events. How was your week? Well, my week has been really strange, and let me kind of explain that. On Tuesday, my wife, Kira, was walking to work, and she was crossing Michigan Avenue from the Van Buren Metro Station, the, the public transportation station, and in the middle of the road, she passed a homeless person who was standing in the middle of Michigan Avenue on the little traffic island there in between the two lanes, and he screamed, and he punched her in the face, and he oh kicked her. God. Yeah, wow. and she's okay. But it turns out that this person was a mentally unstable person. He has apparently paranoid schizophrenia. He was off of his medications, but he was there fighting demons, and it had nothing to do with my wife, but my wife bore the brunt of it. And so she's okay. She called me. She called the police. Uh, lots of people took care of her. But also, I mean, this person was a known quantity to the police, and so they went and they found him in Grant Park, which is just a block away from where the assault happened, and then they... They picked him up and they took him to the local hospital at Northwestern and gave him a psych evaluation. And this is typical of my wife. Her question then was, and what's going to happen to him next? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, the concern there is, you know, this person is, this person is not a sole event. Uh, and what my wife pointed out was that, you know, what we're looking at is the effect of 30 or 35 years of public policy around mental health where people who need care and need support and need medication are oftentimes not given the resources to get that. And, and she pointed out that in 1981, you know, Ronald Reagan changed a policy that President Carter had put into place and switched a federal program to help the mentally ill to a series of state block grants. And we're reaping, you know, even 30 years later, the consequences of that, three decades later. And uh, she really kind of drove home to me and in our conversations about this this past week 
that we're looking at similar things happening right now to the entire healthcare system. And so one of the things that I want to use to kind of bring us into the discussion of Graham Cassidy and the events are unfolding, you know, even as we speak, we're recording this Friday afternoon, the week before, you know, the kind of final blitz for Graham Cassidy to get passed. So a lot is, is unfolding in real time. As we're talking right now, John McCain just came out as a no vote, but that still means that there's, you know, the, there's one more no vote to be found if if this thing is going to be killed. And so there's, it's still a very live issue. By the time this show airs on Wednesday, it may have changed dramatically. But, um, you know, just a way in is to say that, you know, for my wife and I, this is very personal, not just because, you know, we feel strongly about health care for us and for those that we care about, but also because the least of these among us are deeply affected by these kind of federal game-playing decisions. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say, I'm, I'm glad to hear uh, that, that your wife is doing well Thank um, you. And, and handled that so well. I mean, it's, it's a sign of, of generosity, a, a true sign of, of, of Christian support and solidarity, kind of putting the walk to the talk yeah. uh, by, by her care and concern and poise in responding to what is a frightening and terrifying and violent situation for anybody. Yeah. So, so props to her as, as the kids, I don't know if the kids say props anymore, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to say it. And I, I think her observation about the sort of systemic effects, the decision-making at the federal level going back to the 80s under the Reagan administration, you know, the deinstitutionalization of mental health systems and the federal support for those who are in need of, of mental health care has affected so, so many people. It's increased chronic homelessness mm-hmm. in, in urban and in rural areas. It's led to uh, a variety of symptoms that we continue to see unfold. In addition to, or, or I should say, it kind of overlaps in some of our conversation last week and what we'll talk about from the insight of ta Coates about structural or systemic racism in the United States, that we see kind of a nexus of the mental health stigma and, and discrimination, lack of care with, you know, the, the federal penitentiary system, the way that we uh, incarcerate people now without the treatment available for those who are suffering from mental illness and find themselves chronically homeless, the police then become the primary first responder to those cases, and, and and prisons then become the place where these populations get housed and don't receive the treatment they need to be humans that are flourishing, which is the goal, as, as Catholic social teaching, as Catholic ethics points out. What our listeners may or may not know is that the largest mental health facility right now in America is the Cook County Jail. That makes the sheriff of Cook County, uh, Sheriff Tom Dart, sort of a de facto healthcare provider for these people who are literally on the on the sort of the ragged edge because of poverty, because of homelessness, because of any number of issues. They get into the the carceral system, and then as a result of being in the carceral system, they're brought sort of into this, and that's the only place where they can get consistent care. Yeah, and and for our listeners who aren't from uh, the Midwest or, or from this area, Cook County that's that's really the county in which Chicago resides. So um, we're talking about right here. This is this is our county. This is where we live. Uh, this is our backyard. Well, and so the bishops have spoken out on this to some extent, and I'm holding in my hand the last communication from the Conference on Catholic Bishops, their Committee on Domestic Justice and Human Development, from Bishop Frank DeWayne. But what troubles me about this is that this last communication came out in late July. So we're having a situation here where, you know, in late July, Bishop DeWayne came out very clearly and said that they encouraged Congress to work in a bipartisan fashion to protect the vulnerable Americans and preserve important gains in health care coverage and access that were provided by the Affordable Care Act. I hope that the bishops will speak out again this week and will say something strong, but I'm, I'm not sure if I can count on that. Well, this just in. There was a statement that came out, I think, today. Oh, wow. Yeah. A statement that was signed by four bishops, including Cardinal Dolan, who is the chair, I think, of the Committee for Right to Life Issues, and Archbishop Laurie of, of Baltimore, who has been involved in what I would call a somewhat controversial committee, but that maybe we'll save that for another time on, on so-called religious liberty. I say so-called because how that's been construed, the, the category religious liberty, is up to some debate, some some questioning uh, here in the United States, as opposed to, for instance, religious liberty in a place like uh, Vietnam or, or China, where people are not allowed to practice their faith. So he, was he behind kind of like the Fortnite for Freedom stuff? That's or? exactly okay, right. Got yeah. it. So he was he was the primary organizer of that of that program. 
program, which was, again, centered around, in some sense, the Affordable Care Act and its original deployment its, after its initial passage. Anyways, uh, they and, and some of their, their fellow bishops, and it wasn't, I don't believe it was on behalf of the USCCB. I'm not exactly sure what heading it, it, it was uh, released under. But what they said was, one, they also spoke out against the Graham-Cassidy bill. And, and this is, these are, when we say Graham-Cassidy, for those who, who may not be aware, that we're talking about Senator Graham and Senator Cassidy, two members of the GOP who have put together this, as, as David said earlier at the top of our show, 11th hour attempt to yet again repeal the Affordable Care Act, also sometimes called Obamacare. And the bishops have maintained sort of this view that this proposal does not meet what they call the moral test. Now, I would say 90% of uh, the letter is critiquing, probably following in line with, with the July 20th letter from the bishop said earlier in the summer when these other proposals were put up, the so-called skinny proposals, the last resort, these other things, and it eventually died. With regard to this latest iteration, the so-called zombie repeal, you know, it just doesn't seem to die. It just keeps coming back. The bishops have said on one hand, and this is this is perplexing to me. I'd be interested, David, to hear what you have to say about this because those four bishops said, one good thing that we kind of applaud is that this new repeal that, that Graham and Cassidy are proposing, which argues for a, kind of a defederalizing of the healthcare system in this block granting thing, which is like uh, what happened in the 80s with mental health care. They said, well, that's all bad. We like the language about not using federal funds for abortion. Now, what's perplexing about this is that it's been against the law in the United States since September 1976, according to the Hyde Amendment. No federal funds can be used with very, very few. I think the one exception is if the life of the mother is at stake. Um, So it's a very narrow category. But in general, it's been against the law and understood that you cannot use federal funds to fund abortion in the United States. So I'm I'm, I'm a little perplexed by that weird sort of aside. But by and large, they said this is this is unacceptable. And the language they said is as a whole, this fails, quote, the moral test. So I can say a little bit about the Hyde Amendment, and that is that the both the Democratic Socialists and the Democratic Party have strong factions within them that are pushing for an absolute repeal of the Hyde Amendment. Oh, I see. And yeah. so so there is definitely rhetoric coming from the left that would be examples that they could point to to say, oh, my goodness, they are actually trying to go after the Hyde Amendment. They're actually trying to go from uh, safe and rare, which was the rhetoric, I guess, two election cycles ago, to now being abortion on demand without apology, which mm-hmm. is the, or, or as some activists on the left have, have said, shout your abortion. I am discomforted by those calls from my friends on the left, both in the Democratic Socialists and in the Democratic Party. And there was a really good editorial before the election in Commonweal about the importance not of repealing the Hyde Amendment and and that it creates a good neutral ground for us to continue to debate and move forward around health care issues. But I can see kind of the point of the bishops on that, to, or at least I can imagine myself into a place where I could understand their their position. But the uh, the kind of splitting hairs of saying, well, we applaud this, but but on the whole, this is morally bad. Let's just I, I just want to come out and say that Graham Cassidy, by my lights, and I'm only speaking from my own conscience, but it's it's a it's a moral atrocity. Yeah, they're not really looking at the 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 content of the bill. They're just trying to fulfill the campaign promise that says we're going to repeal and replace Obamacare. And we should talk about why this is being fought before the end of September. Yeah, and I mean, if I can pick up on that point, yeah, um, it's it's again, <laughs> the uh, the process of passing legislation and amendments in, in the United States uh, Senate and Congress is not quite as simple as Schoolhouse Rock would have us believe. About I'm just a bill, just you know, a bill on on the steps. Uh, there are all of these maneuvers and loopholes of sorts. You know, one of the reasons they, there's a September 30th deadline for passage uh, with a simple majority is because they're doing so in the process of budget reconciliation. And once the fiscal year expires, the new fiscal year begins October 1st, they go back to needing a so-called supermajority. They need 60 votes in the Senate. Um, Right now, there are 52 Republican senators. And with Vice President Mike Pence, you have a tie-breaking vote. So you can afford to lose, as it were, two votes. What you had mentioned at the top of our show, uh, just breaking news, you know, it's so it, it, we get this letter coming in from the bishops. We have this breaking news about Senator McCain. Uh, McCain has gone on the record saying that he will not vote for this, which is which is striking. This was 
his best friend in the Senate, Senator Lindsey Graham, they're very, very close. Some have said, you know, they're like big brother, little brother. Um, they're, they're, they truly care uh, about one another. They're very, very close, respect one another. And so some were concerned that even though John McCain essentially provided the, the last nail in the coffin of the last round of the attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act, maybe the loyalty, the friendship would push him over the edge this time. That does not seem to be the case. And so as of Friday afternoon, as we're recording this in advance of Wednesday, it's a dead proposal. But if we've learned anything this year and this going back to this election of 2016, I guess anything is possible. Well, and part of what it is that they're going to utilize to try and strong arm people to vote for this, they're going to try and utilize these block grants. And and one of the things that I've been reading as I've been researching this is that the block grants are being used against blue states to help to shore up in the short term red states. And so it's basically a massive reappropriation of funds away from the Democratic states. And the states that really bought into the Medicaid expansion budget for health care will be gutted and directed towards red states. And so that's that's a massive sell. It is. It is for certainly for those coming from red states. So I mean, we can assume by and large that we're talking about Republican representatives and senators here. So this is uh, some information from CNN. Big states are not surprisingly affected the most. Texas, which rejected Medicaid expansion under Obamacare, would see an increase of $35 billion in federal dollars headed its way. California and New York, two massive states whose governors accepted the Medicaid expansion, would see dips in funding of $78 billion and $45 billion, respectively. And that's from a, a CNN article just today called Four Charts that explain what Graham Cassidy will do. Yeah, it's it's exactly that. It's it's punishing the people who have gone along and and punishing legislatures and and governors who have sought to take advantage, um, as was the intention of the legislation of the Affordable Care Act to care for U.S. citizens, our residents in these in these different states. So uh, it's it's playing politics with people's lives, and it's it's completely unfair and unjust. You know, and the problem with this again is is perception versus reality, perception of equity versus what is just, and and it's true. It's 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 factually true that uh, when it comes to this the federal funding here for health care, that there's a higher percentage to fewer states. So California, which is, the, I think, the world's third or fourth largest economy or something, you know, after the United States and China, then it's like California. California, New York, our own state here of Illinois, these are, these are states that have very, very large populations. And so they are going to have more Medicare, more Medicaid and the expansion uh, funding that comes as a result of this. There's a reason why Wyoming and North Dakota don't get as much. Part of it is that some of those states, uh, so-called red states, the governors and the and the state legislatures have just been obstinate in refusing to accept the reality of, uh, of the Affordable Care Act and have resisted it to the detriment of their own citizens, of course. We can't lose sight of that. On the one hand, it sounds like something that makes sense theoretically from a federalist perspective, which a number of the, the, the GOP representatives and, and senators are, are definitely behind. They say, well, let's return the authority, the autonomy to the states. One might even make sort of a weak subsidiarity argument from a Catholic perspective, but I would be very reticent to accept that. In fact, to point out case studies in which in our own very recent history, this has proved detrimental. Case in point, what your wife experienced as a direct symptom of uh, the defunding of mental health at the federal level, mental health care. So I think we're in, in agreement in terms of our perspectives. We're in alignment with the bishops by and large here. And in fact, I think totally uh, my comment about the Hyde Amendment was only simply to say, well, I don't see how that's really relevant in this case, um, why they need to mention this. But to your point, maybe that's what they were getting at. Either way, I think we are all on the same page. If this were to pass, it would not only be a disaster, it would be completely unjust. Yeah, so we're going to just leave you in this segment with a, a little push. Please call your senators. Use the last few days of this month to really let them know that if you think that this is a bad idea, they should not do it. So we, we're going to make that little pitch to you before we uh, we go out for a break. Yeah. Google your senator. Google your representatives. We'll have a uh, link on the show notes to yeah. uh, a search a menu where you can do that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, email Frank, and we'll be happy to send you the number if if it comes to that. But we want you to call your senators. In fact, David is so committed to this. If you email Frank, he's going to get in his car and drive to your house and dial the number for you. <laughs> Maybe not. He's he but may- Carl Castle might. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for listening to the Francis Effect podcast. We'll be right back.
Hello, this is David, uh, outside the podcast realm for the moment, just talking to you in advertising land. If you're enjoying the conversation that we're having, I want to make sure that you're aware that I do another show as well called Things Not Seen, Conversations About Culture and Faith. That's a weekly show that's been on since 2011, and we've talked to some amazing guests. It's basically a long-form interview where we get a chance to talk about how faith animates a person's life. We talk to authors and politicians and tastemakers and musicians, any kinds of folks that have some sort of faith component to their lives. So I'd love it if you get if you gave that a chance, too, and gave that a listen. That's at thingsnotseenradio.com. That's thingsnotseenradio.com. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we're back with The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan here with David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. In recent weeks, there has been quite a stir in the Catholic world, particularly as a result of campaigns launched by online presences, blogs, uh, video programming, uh, podcasts, and others. This is something that we see very often in Twitter. And right now, David and I, we're going to chat here about at least two very current events. Uh, They're unfolding right now. Uh, That is the disinvitations or the rescinding of invitations to give lectures. One case involves Father James Martin, editor-at-large at at America Magazine and and a very well-regarded and popular author. The other that we'll talk about is Professor M. Sean Copeland, a full professor of systematic theology at Boston College, Uh, again, a a renowned uh, theologian and and well-respected universally, uh, except for in in the uh, recesses of troll land and Catholic, as Father Martin referred to them at one point in Twitter the last few days, uh, so-called Catholic alt-right. So, uh, David, what's the going on here? Well, so first of all, I just really found out about Church Militant, and there's actually a piece, I think, by The Atlantic about Church Militant. It's very and, disturbing. Yeah, they do a little video biography of their founder and all that, and, and I'm, so I'm, I'm just getting up to speed on this. I mean, I'm, I'm used to sort of people being disinvited. In fact, when I, was, when I was teaching several years ago, we had a speaker who was disinvited, and my experience with that personally was that these sorts of things happen kind of under the radar, and so the way that it happened in my experience was the bishop was not actually involved or informed that the person was being disinvited, but someone in the bishop's office in the name of the bishop put the pressure on the school to disinvite the person. And so sometimes these things happen in that kind of sub rosa way, and that to me is the most disturbing aspect of this. Yeah, it's it's especially disturbing not only because that maintains a certain, to, to quote the Italians, bella figura, right? I mean, it's a behind-the-scenes thing, and everyone gets to save face, as it were. That's not even what's disturbing here. To contextualize this, what you're describing, though it may in itself be unjust and it raises questions about academic freedom on college and university campuses, what you have there, at least, is the involvement of some persons in authority uh, representing the office of the bishop, whether they had the actual thumbs up from the local ordinary is a different question, and, and I don't know enough about it. What we see in this, in both of these cases is this is not coming from bishops. It's not coming from any kind of person who actually has authority of any variety within uh, the Roman Catholic Church. What we see here are amateurs. I'm gonna, I'm just going to use that, and people may view that as, as judgmental. I don't. In the spirit of amateur sports, what we get here are people who are quite literally non-professionals, people who, by whatever you know, compelling or, or, or drive or ambition that they have, decide to form these uh, new media operations, YouTube channels, as in the case of Church Militant or their blog, Twitter accounts, uh, Facebook presences, and so forth. And these folks go around as self-authorized, self, oftentimes self-righteous figures to serve as a kind of Catholic Orthodoxy police. And, and our listeners can imagine me doing air quotes because these folks oftentimes have no theological, no canonical, no oftentimes philosophical training. They're not clergy or members of, of religious communities. So they have no kind of official ties. They may very well be uh, legitimate practicing Catholics, uh, members of the, of the body of Christ as, as baptized members of the church, but they take it upon themselves to organize and by means of the internet and social media, stir up enough of a storm that they can launch these campaigns that effectively harass the inviting organizations. And that's what we see play out here. 
Uh, in the one instance, we have uh, Father Martin in the last few weeks. He's been, his invitations have been rescinded. He's been disinvited from a number of events. Probably the most public or the most well-known is that at Theological College, the National Seminary of the United States at Catholic University of America. And uh, very recently, is, is supposed to be something, a lecture that was supposed to take place this week by uh, Dr. Sh- uh, Sean Copeland. And we can talk a little bit more about that. I Just by way of full disclosure, I know both of these figures. I know both uh, Father Martin and uh, Professor Copeland very well. Professor Copeland is one of my uh, doctoral studies mentors. She was my coursework advisor during my PhD studies and was a member of my dissertation committee. She is unassailable when it comes to repute and and orthodoxy, faithfulness, the church teaching. I can attest to that on a personal level. And she doesn't need that. She Her work stands for itself. And, and isolated, misreading, misconstrued, and ignorant interpretations of, of professional scholarly work in the field of theology has led to, with a combination of what I would say is misogyny, sexism, racism, and homophobia, has led to the pressure and and the kind of fear-mongering that has led to this disrespectful move on the part of, I'm deeply ashamed to say, a ostensibly Franciscan university. Madonna University is, is founded in the Franciscan tradition. So that I find troubling. Father Jim Martin and I go way back. I was a staff columnist for four years in America Magazine, writing on subjects of, of theology and culture and politics. And we've known each other before then. We know each other well now. I have nothing uh, negative to say about Jim. He is uh, highly regarded, highly respected, and deeply prayerful, spiritual, funny, <laughs> nice guy, down to earth, and and no doubt uh, brilliant writer and an evangelizer. So that was a little long-winded. David, I'm throwing it back to you. I can keep going. Well, I want to take two steps back and then kind of move into the the meat of what the ostensible charge is against them. But the two steps back that I want to take is, so as teachers in the church, anyone who, who purports to be a public theologian is under certain responsibilities according to Catholic canon law and Catholic tradition. So one of the responsibilities comes from a document that was promulgated by uh, Blessed John Paul II called Ex Cordia Ecclesiae, or From the Heart of the Church. And it basically says that those who are teaching in the church and are, are teaching theological subjects particularly should do so in a way that, and I'm going to paraphrase here, but that the church could recognize itself in the teaching. And that's that has been canonized in a canon called Canon 812 that says that teachers of theological subjects particularly, but and some schools interpret this to all subjects, must receive a document called the mandatum. And I, I'm giving the listeners a background in this because this became a major controversy in American universities that had a Catholic affiliation, and it is still a live issue. Whether or not an individual teacher, particularly in a theology program, must have this mandatum, which is a, a, a literally a letter or a contract between the teacher and the bishop, that says in various ways that the teaching that is given will be reflective of of the teaching of the church and that the church would be able to recognize itself in that. Now, full disclosure, I have a mandatum. And so when I do conversations like this or when I do things that are in public, I am constantly thinking about my relationship to the church and to the ordinary that, that dispensed this and the relationship that I have with that ordinary. This became an issue when I taught at a Catholic college because I went in there putting that on my letter of application, and I had certain faculty members flag that and say, "Why did? Why do you have one? And why did you? Why did you bring that up?" Yeah. And so, and and so, this I just want our, our listeners to realize that this is a live issue, and so the the way that it cuts is exactly what you said: the question of academic freedom. American universities have a, a tradition that says that inquiry should be unfettered. And that those who are are teaching and researching in universities should have the right to look in all places and to use all methods to find the truth. This pushes up against certain interpretations of the mandatum. And so when we come to people who are invited to speak at Catholic universities or universities with a Catholic affiliation, there is a real live question. And the universities are in a tension with their ordinary. And by ordinary, for those that are unfamiliar with that term, we mean their bishop. Yeah, but I need to jump back in yeah, here please because, do. you know, it's important. That That's true. Everything you just said, David, is correct. There's certain presuppositions as well. For instance, what you described, and I think pretty accurately in your paraphrase about uh, the expectations of the theologian and the vocation of the theologian in the church, 
something that the International Theological Commission and others have talked about in recent years. Everything you said is correct, but it doesn't mean that one parrots only encyclicals, only, you know, the catechism is not a theological text, so the catechism is a bad example. At a college campus, at, certainly at a graduate school, it doesn't have much place. It's, it's there to serve, by definition, forming catechumens, so it's good for RCIA, it's good for quick reference. In any event, I, I think that people think sometimes that the magisterial authority in which theologians, including lay theologians, participate by virtue of their vocation, by virtue of this kind of thumbs up from the local ordinary that's called the mandatum, what they do is just tow some kind of generic party line. That's not it at all. The, the church recognizes, and we wouldn't understand our faith as, as it exists over the course of 2,000 years, in which it did and has and continues to develop, if there wasn't what we in our contemporary context would call academic freedom. And it extends beyond the American context for sure. But this idea that people can legitimately raise questions. Now, dissent is not equal to raising questions about the way things are articulated today or the way that things are perceived to be understood in terms of doctrine or, or church teaching. So if I'm, if I'm hearing you correctly, just because you ask why or you ask how, that doesn't mean that you're saying, I don't agree. That's right. Dissent, by definition, both canonically and uh, in, in, in a theological context, means that you have to acknowledge what the teaching is, and you have to willfully say, I reject that. In fact, when it comes to moral positions, Catholic ethics, Catholic moral theology makes it very, very clear what's demanded of us, depending on the level of teaching, but I'll use Humana Vitae as an example, this teaching that comes across universally about artificial birth control from the magisterial level of an encyclical. So it's, it's the Bishop of Rome speaking on his behalf as uh, first among equals. He, it's not something that's promulgated with the charism of infallibility, so it's not infallible, but it's of a very significant level. It's a teaching that has to be respected and received. Now, what's expected of the laity, of theologians, and so forth, is, is what's called in Latin obsequium religiosum, which is the kind of assent of the mind and will, the desire to embrace and receive this teaching. But in truth, people for a variety of reasons may not be able to do that. That doesn't mean they're dissenting. To dissent means to say, I reject this outright. And some people do. Some people dissent from certain church teachings. But I think there's a lot of confusion in the conversation, especially at an academic level, at a college campus, university campus, graduate school campus, seminary campus. There needs to be a maintenance, and the church recognizes this, for the legitimate scientific inquiry into philosophy and theology. And so it's not dissenting to raise questions or to pose sometimes challenging questions about how uh, teachings are articulated, the history of it. Otherwise, if, if that wasn't the case, usury would still be a mortal sin. The Catholic Church would still support slavery. The way that we relate to non-Christians and non-Catholics would be very different. And among other things, the Holy Spirit wouldn't be recognized as divine because newsflash, uh, it took about 600 years of ecumenical councils to hammer that out. Anyways, all of this is to say, it's interesting because in talking about the mandatum and talking about dissent and assent and these sorts of things, these are actually moot issues with regard to the two people we're talking about today yeah. because no bishop is behind this. Quite yeah. the opposite. The bishops support both of these figures, both Father Martin and Dr. Copeland, in the sense that Dr. Copeland has never been under any kind of investigation or critique for her work. She's never been censured or anything like this. She is a theologian and a Catholic in excellent standing. And I, I, should, I should add to that, that when we look at canon law, one of the very first canons in canon law says that if you are going to bring any kind of charge against anyone, you have to first of all treat them as a baptized brother and sister in Christ. You have to give them the benefit of the, of the doubt, and you have to present any charges that you might have against them in an ecclesial context. So you would need to bring this to a bishop, or you'd need to bring this to some sort of church authority, a tribunal, in order to even have this actually adjudicated. Yeah, and it's not for the place. And, and you know, I some people say, well, this is ad hominem to refer to these anonymous people as trolls. No, I think this is a perfectly legitimate category. I want to shift gears, and, and because it's it can't be ad hominem if I don't know who you are. And, and I think that's an important thing. So let's yeah. maybe we can dial back and look at what what the case is here, because yeah. we've talked a little bit about maybe instances in which one might imagine an understandable or conceivable legitimate question about a speaker on a Catholic campus. But with regard to the case of Father Martin and, uh, and, and Professor Copeland, 
what we have here is a combination of self-appointed individuals who run websites that have a lot of eyes, a lot of followers, like Church Militant, like Father Z, LifeSite News based out of Toronto. And by way of full disclosure, I feel like this is the Dan Haran disclosure episode. I've been the target of all these groups. There was uh, a campaign against me because of a video series that explains uh, Morris Letizia. And there's a scene in uh, just a very short clip in the opening sequence because the whole text is about the contemporary situation of families and relationships and so on, right? It's The Joy of Love is the name of the document of Pope Francis's apostolic exhortation. And there's one scene, and it's about two seconds, maybe not even two seconds, where there are two men holding hands. And people flipped out. And, and it read into and extracted, and it came up with all these crazy things. I think it was LifeSite News or one of these Toronto things, or I don't know, one of these uh, websites in, encouraged their readers or followers or, or whatever, their army of anonymous trolls, to contact my provincial, to contact, uh, you know, whatever, and they posted that information in New York City and stuff on the website. Well, that went absolutely nowhere. And in, in my case, it was very, very superficial, and it got blown out of proportion. Uh, it's, it's kind of uh, paradoxical or perplexing. In the case of Father Martin, he released a book uh, that came out earlier this summer called Building Bridges about um, dialogue between the Roman Catholic Church, particularly its leadership, its hierarchy, and uh, the LGBTQ community. It's a fine book. Um, it received not only the imprimatur of his religious superiors, um, but it received endorsements from two cardinals um, and a number of bishops and a number of other religious superiors. It's, it's been very, very uh, well received within uh, the church leadership. What I'll say about that is, from my personal perspective, it's a perfectly fine book. It doesn't really propose anything outrageous. You know, probably the most novel thing, quote unquote novel, is that he says, you know what, maybe church leaders out of a sign of respect for LGBT persons should use the terms that they prefer. Don't use things like homosexual or same-sex attractions, you know, in these clinical senses. Say gay and lesbian, the identities, the, the, the names, the uh, markers that, that they use themselves. And people have gotten really upset about that. Um, our own cardinal here, Cardinal Blaise Supich, has used the terms gay and lesbian, which is a sign of respect. You know, other than that, Jim is just simply saying we need to have some conversations here. And and that's about it. He's not calling for a change in church, church teaching. He doesn't go down that road. So uh, that these people have a bee in their bonnet, it really is a matter of projection. And that's where I feel a, a kindred sympathy, you know, with the kind of campaign that was launched on a much smaller scale against me within the last two years. Here, he's doing something, you know, equally innocuous, but very productive um, in the sense that he he's not calling for any, he's not dissenting, he's not calling for anything radical. But that's upset some people. Well, and let's just let's let's be very clear. The Catholic Church has some very bright lines around the question of same sex attraction, around homosexuality, around gay and lesbian love. I mean, the Catholic Church has some clear teachings and it doesn't it doesn't appear that those teachings are going to go anywhere anytime soon. That being said, just as you said earlier, the the ability to raise questions about how we should make gestures of hospitality towards those that are that are in that state of being. That seems to be the, the lightning rod that, that pushes people over the edge. Even the mention or even the, the suggestion that we should in some, in some way be hospitable to these people seems to set these, these organizations like Church Militant off. Well, what Jim is pointing out is that this isn't some sort of alien, you know, group of people. These aren't people, you know, it's, it's, it's almost a no-brainer. We're talking about our brothers and sisters. We're talking about men and women, our, 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 our cousins, our our. You know, parents, our children, our siblings, uh, our friends, our coworkers. It, he had, he didn't go necessarily this far, but there was a great article that Bishop McElroy, the Bishop of, of San Diego, the Diocese of San Diego, released. He was one of the people who did write an endorsement for this book, and he came out with a very strong article that was published by American Magazine in defense of, of Father Jim, and in which he said, and he he made this point very strongly. He's a bright guy. He too has a PhD, very very sharp. He said. Chastity is not the primary virtue in Catholicism. Charity is. Love is. And he's not saying that chastity is unimportant. People can do whatever they want. There's like it's licensed, you know, for debauchery. That's not it at all. But his point is, as Pope Francis has made similar kind of remarks with his who am I to judge statement, um, with the way that he talked in his first public interview about 
the disproportionate focus on things like uh, abortion when it comes to life issues and not considering other issues too, like poverty as a life issue, you know, these sorts of calls. None of these people, the Holy Father, Bishop McElroy, Jim Martin, any, any of these folks, nobody is saying these things are unimportant and we need to get rid of them. The problem is that you have these self-appointed, oftentimes anonymous, self-righteous people who see singular issues. It's only abortion and abortion is the only issue. No other issue is important, not going to be concerned about it at all. And we see, you know, we've talked about Professor Copeland a little bit, Father Martin, there was a case of an adjunct professor at Franciscan University in Steubenville who has been a strong advocate uh, for the consistent uh, ethic of life, which our own uh, Cardinal Bernadine of Chicago, the late Cardinal Bernadine, was a, was a champion, a, a promoter. But the idea of the seamless garment that if you claim to be pro-life, you can't just be anti-abortion. Right. You have to be against capital punishment. You have to be for a just wage. You have to be against those systems and structures that demean and devalue human life at all at all turns. And this the same group, Church Militant and these other figures, these other groups of people, uh, somehow found that despicable and, and, and have pressured Franciscan University of Steubenville and others to be in an uncomfortable position. So this, this business is, is not a call necessarily to change church teaching, although I think what Bishop McElroy is pointing out is that we need to think about how we value, how we prioritize our teaching and our instruction, how we form our consciences. I, I think what McElroy's, uh, Bishop McElroy is talking about there is that these folks who are organizing these campaigns, I would call them smear campaigns, the pressure organizations to uninvite people, these people, all they can think about is what's going on in their pants, to put it to put it bluntly, that they're sex obsessed, and you know I encourage people to watch that. We'll have a link up to that Atlantic Magazine uh, video about Church Militant, and you can hear the founder and some of the people there talk about their own struggles with their sexuality, and I think in a very unhealthy way. And it doesn't take much to draw the connection between their own personal struggles and an inability to come to terms with their own self, love themselves, uh, to feel loved by God, uh, to be constructive as a member of the church and of society, you see that play out in, in, in a self-hatred that spills over into hatred of others. Well, that seems like a, a good place to leave this for now. There's a lot more to say, but we should probably move on to our next topic, and we'll do that right after this. So please stay with us. This is The Francis Effect. We'll be right back. The Francis Effect is made possible in part by our wonderful supporters at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod to find out about how you can join them. A couple of dollars a month really adds up, and we appreciate it. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash francisfxpod. Thank you. This is The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here, as always, with Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. If you were listening to that last segment and you were wishing that we would go deeper and say more about Sean Copeland, please tune in to our extra bonus segment that you can access by Patreon, and we'll go into more detail there. And that's at patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Well, I, I spent part of this week just blown away by Ta-Nehisi Coates' recent article in The Atlantic, and I read over it, and I, I really have been just very eager to talk with you about it, and I'm glad it seemed like you had a similar a similar sense of that. And I will kind of give full ownership here. So a lot of my academic background is framed with the study of the, uh, the late Hegelians and Karl Marx. And if you come out of that tradition, you come out of that tradition with a, with a real kind of economic lens, and you end up thinking that even things like racism are actually ultimately class issues and that race and racism is being utilized to distract you from the deeper class issues. I will say that reading Coates' piece is the first time in my adult professional life that I have found a cogent reason to question that basic thesis. He really laid it out in a way that makes me now think that racism, at least in the American context, is something that is deeper than the class structure. And I'd love, I mean, I, I want to get into that, but I'd also just love to hear what you got from, from that article as well. 
Yeah, David, I, first of all, wow, <laughs> to hear somebody whose work in 19th century Hegelian <laughs> philosophy leads to that point. I mean, yeah, those in, in, the, in the Marxist uh, Frankfurt School and those kinds of things coming out of that are, are tend to be very class-oriented. So yeah. this is real live, real feels. I, I, that's the first I've heard of this. So listeners, we're, we're in real time together. But I think you're right. I, I think you're right. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates' writing uh, in The Atlantic, his articles um, like The Case for Reparations, and his last book, which I cannot recommend highly enough, called Between the World and Me, which is framed as an essay, as a letter to his teenage son about what it's like to be a black man in, in America, is so powerful, so insightful. Uh, I, I think it needs to be required reading for everybody. And so that's just, you know, an unpaid commercial announcement. I have found in my own in increasing reflection and learning my desire to be open to the experiences of others the recognition and, and kind of self-evaluation of my own place in the world as somebody who is incredibly privileged and recognize that. I mean that both in the kind of traditionally figurative sense, but in the sociological and, and structural sense as well. As a white male, Roman Catholic cleric, extremely highly educated, somebody who has a number of, of social positions and honorifics and titles that place me within our society in a place that there are unearned, unsolicited benefits or advantages that I receive by virtue of being me that are not necessarily merited. It's a difficult point for a lot of people to think about. It has been for me at times, but it's something that I'm, I'm very aware of and, and attuned to these days. I think Coates's uh, writing, particularly Between the World and Me, and again here in, in The First White uh, President, he does such a tremendous job, almost like Jesus with the parables, what you think, especially if you're a white person in the United States, if you're a white male like me, even like you, a white male who reads things through a class lens by virtue of your academic training, he has a way of flipping those expectations to see and you get this aha moment. So overall, that's kind of like my meta picture. Is I think he makes a compelling case. I am I already pre-ordered. I'm super stoked about uh, the full book coming out, although some of the chapters I saw in the table of contents are expansions and revisions of, of pieces that have appeared in the Atlantic already, well worth rereading. So that's cool with me. He's not, he's not pulling one over on me there. Well, the thing that struck me, and when I was in graduate school, I did a lot of reading in a theologian by the name of James Cone. Oh, yeah. And one of Cone's theses, for those that are unfamiliar with his work, and around the Obama administration, James Cone's name and black theology came up a lot because of Jeremiah Wright, who is a past, who was a pastor on the south side of Chicago at uh, at Trinity Church. And the thesis of black theology was, among other things, that if Jesus Christ was going to be present in the world today, where would we find Jesus Christ? And Cones's thesis was, we would find him in the most marginalized, the most despised place, which means that in the American context, we would likely find him in the body of a black man. And that resonates very strongly with a misunderstanding of what that is saying, because he's trying to take blackness and use it instead as an opprobrium and not a physical fact of skin. And we see this, for example, this week, the, the woman, the old woman with gray hair in red, who gets walked over by the police line in St. Louis. You know, if you stand with the black experience, if you stand in solidarity with black oppression, then the forces and the powers of America will turn against you in the same way that they have turned against the bodies of black people. Without going too, too deep in the weeds in that, I found resonating points of James Cones' basic thesis in what Coates was saying. And I, in the same way that when I was reading Cone, you know, 10 years ago, as I'm reading Coates, I'm finding myself saying, oh, I hate the fact that I have to admit this, but I have to admit this is absolutely right. This was my experience growing up in the South. This was my experience living on the South side of Chicago. I can see the point that they're making. One of the things too, and, and why, you know, I, I like the honesty, I appreciate the honesty and like the way you phrased, you know, ah, I hate, I hate to admit that this is true. Why that's so important is because it, it is in a sense, the first step to acknowledging the privilege. It's, it's the it's it's the cliched platonic cave where you come out and now you're seeing you know the light you're you're not just looking at the shadows what privilege does and and we can talk about male privilege we can talk about religious privilege you know to be a christian 
of any stripe in the United States, you're not aware of the discrimination and, and the kind of animosity that's leveled against other particularly religious minorities. There are all sorts of things. But when it comes to race, what, what ta Coates does here and, and has been thanks to the gift of his his extraordinary writing, you know, ecumenist prowess, he, he's so talented and, and so clear thinking, so sharp. If, if you read this, you really can't dispute it in a sense where other people may want to wiggle out of it or come up with conditions. He, he does such an extraordinary job here. But what, what he helps do for people in places of privilege in a white supremacist society, which the United States is, to say that isn't to say that we're run by neo-Nazis or skinheads. To say that is to say quite literally and simply that in the United States, who reigns supreme? One of the things that he points out that I think is really striking and, and it speaks out speaks to your experience to some degree, I think, in, in, in talking about reading black liberation theology, James Cone, we can think of Cornell West, we can think of M. Sean Copeland, we can think of Dolores Williams and, and so many others who've been saying this from their own experience, as well as white, we might say, allies, people who are, are writing from the position of what it means to talk about discrimination, racism, and its role within uh, Christianity and so forth, is that privilege covers over its own reality. It forces people by its very nature to not recognize its own reality. It, it covers its tracks. When, when people say, for instance, oh, that's not racist, that's X, Y, or Z, maybe it's police aggression or, or police killings of young black men or something like this, and white people would be more inclined to say, oh, well, no, that's just X, Y, or Z, where uh, you know a person of color would say, well, no, my experience is I know what it's like to be pulled over for no reason other than the color of my skin or the clothes that I'm wearing or the kind of vehicle that I'm driving. And let's not mince words. Dylan Roof walked in and killed people who were at prayer in a black church. Right. The most safe, pardon the, the weird juxtaposition, the most vanilla activity you could be involved in. These were not quote-unquote thugs. These were people who were literally at prayer, and yet they were not safe. Yeah, and even the way, you know, even the language, it, you know, that's right. When, when you say, you use a term like thug, and I know you don't mean it this way, it wasn't your intention. Nevertheless, it's, it's a racialized construct, right? People hear that word thug, and, and our current president has used that language in a context that really refers to persons of color, particularly young black men. And when you think thug, there's a social construction that does not say, you know, teenage white woman. The, the subtlety of racism in our language, in, in our relationships, in our institutions is really, really striking. You know, what racism is and why we live in a, an incredibly racist culture is that phenotype, that is the way we present to one another by the color or appearance of our skin is valued in a way and serves as a category of, of judgment and it's completely arbitrary. It doesn't have to be this way, but what ta Coates and others do so well is point out that this is the reality. This is not an idea. This is not, let's just get over something that happened 200 years ago in, in terms of chattel slavery, you know, the owning of human beings. This is a persistent reality, and part of its, its persistence is tied to the fact that we've never come to terms with the deeply overt forms of racism, of, of xenophobia, of nationalism, and these other things. So for those who haven't read, and we, we'll, we'll throw up a link to the Atlantic article that we're talking about or what's led to it, kind of kicked off our conversation. You know, one of the overarching theses that, that Coates points out is that Trump is, in the truest sense, the first white president, white as a category in contradistinction to somebody who's black. And this, this is why I want to bring James Cohn back in, because Cohn talks about ontological blackness and ontological whiteness in theological and philosophical categories. He's not talking about the color of skin, but he's talking instead about the way that privilege really works out and oppression works out in society. Right. And so a black person is a person who can be oppressed and no one will blink an eye. I think of the postcards where a person, a human being is hanging from a tree, a lynching, and you have people gathered around this dead body almost like it's a picnic. And there are postcards made of this. These are people who are accessories to murder, and yet they're proudly flouting their association with it. This is what Cone meant by the power of whiteness. He didn't mean it in terms of the color of skin. He meant the power to get away with literal sin, with literal murder, and to think that it's somehow a virtue, to, to have such a perverted moral reality. And I, I really hear that when Coates is saying that Donald Trump is the first white president, 
I'm hearing it in those James Cone type categories that this is a moral reality that has then the the fact of of Barack Obama as a black president so offended, and I'm paraphrasing Coates here, so offended a certain part of American society and certainly so offended Donald Trump that the reaction to it was this almost in the same manner as the people gathered for the picnic at the lynching. You know, we're going to bring out the worst now and we're going to put it on parade. Oh, and that's the thing. That's that's the striking thing. And he's 100 percent correct. I, I agree with Coates entirely on this point where he says that if you look at the scrutiny under which President Obama was viewed and the challenges that were placed before him and the exception, I mean, he was basically superhuman. If you think about the kind of attacks that he endured, the the obstructionism of the minority party at first, and you know, and then the party that that took back the House and with regard to Republicans, Mitch Mitch McConnell standing up on day one of President Obama's administration, saying our number one task is to undermine this guy. It is extraordinary what he was able to accomplish in what with what such poise with not the single slightest hint of a scandal or of some sort of duplicity or malfeasance, both he and his family are exceptional. And this is Coates's point. A, a, a black person has to work a thousand times harder just to be taken seriously. And it's the greatest sort of slap in the face. Uh, and, and maybe it is, is as striking as, as to see these images of, of lynchings and Jim Crow era and, uh, and, and so forth, where it's, it is almost as if America collectively said, you know what, F you, we're going to show you that our most vulgar, our most unprepared, someone who, whether he's intelligent or not, acts unintelligently, acts impulsively, somebody who is admitted on tape to assaulting women, somebody who uses language and, and, and makes fun of the disabled, who calls those immigrants from Mexico and South America rapists and, and bad people and these other things. That person could be president because they're white. And and Coates' point is no person of color would ever, ever be taken seriously for a, a half a second if any one of those things entered into the sphere. That itself is a stark sign of inequality and the persistence in, in, in the systemic nature of racism. One of the things that as Catholics we need to keep in mind as well is that if we look a century ago, if we look back to, you know, 1916 and before, we would find ourselves, particularly our Irish brothers and sisters, classed in much the same way. And so it's only been a very recent turn in American society where we have been able, as Catholics, to be accepted. And now we have tremendous power and influence. I mean, every sitting member of the Supreme Court who is not Jewish is Catholic. Yeah. Well, let me let me just say something about that. Maybe a little pushback or maybe just an addendum that yeah, anti-Catholicism is a real thing. Yeah. Definitely was big time in the 19th century. It still exists in some parts of the country today. I mean, surprisingly sometimes. I remember being in college and one of my good friends is a United Methodist and or for, for a member of the Free Methodist Church. And her, she, I remember her telling me that she was getting her car tuned up before freshman year at college. And once the mechanic, who is a member of her church, found out she was going to St. Bonaventure, he was very, very concerned about Catholicism and going to the Catholics and everything. This is in Western New York, for heaven's sake, right? So it is a real thing. But I, I have to say, anti-Catholicism, particularly as it affected Italian and Western European immigrants as well as the Irish, isn't the same thing because of uh, the way that uh, phenotype plays a role yeah. and, and the perception of value based on skin color. And I'm not trying to draw an equivalence. No, no. I mean, there was violence against Catholics. We can see histories of that, but nothing like what we see systemically against no. African-Americans. And this is something we see, and it's it's not to highlight, you know, it's not to, to play uh, identity politics as kind of like a race to the bottom. Who suffers more? It's just to acknowledge the reality that, you know, homophobia is very, very real. But the thing is, it's not worn on you in a way. You can so-called present straight, right, or act straight or something like this. You can be Roman Catholic in 1870 in Massachusetts and still have people discriminate against Catholics, but you can pretend to be Presbyterian. Right. You know, you can't stop being black. Right. And I think that's the real sort of evil of racism is that— this arbitrariness that's assigned to skin tone and is so deeply embedded in our history, racism and, and you know, anti-black discrimination is so deeply embedded in, in the very fabric of this country. You, you, you know, you could have every one of the um, 
disadvantages of class, gender, sexual orientation, education, and so forth. You could be a white, rural, queer, uneducated, poor woman and still walk into Macy's in downtown Chicago and not elicit the suspicion and ire of the security guards. Meanwhile, Oprah Winfrey, who's a billionaire, could walk in and still have somebody follow her around. And this is partly Coates' point. And he, he points out how race was used to build alliances against these kinds of class issues and that those alliances still exist today. And I mean, we see it in, in terms of, well, the Democrats just didn't reach out to the poor working class voters. And Coates just totally skewers that, which I'm, I'm very thankful that he takes the wind out of that particular thesis because it's a pernicious thesis that somehow we, it's just the, the white working class that is voting against their interests. There were a whole lot of middle class and upper class white people that put Trump in office. No, that's exactly right. In fact, those who would ostensibly be against Trump, and so he cites, for instance, Joe Biden, and he cites Bernie Sanders and others. Now, this is the thing. Again, when we talk about structural racism as distinct from yet tied to, nevertheless, overt racist acts of individuals, it's, it's difficult to see, but it's sometimes difficult to see this play out. But what Coates does is really uncover that. He, he points out the fact that the discourse of people like Joe Biden, who is well-meaning and who supports a number of policies that would support those who've been historically marginalized or, or have experienced discrimination or disadvantages in, in a structural way, nevertheless says things like, one of the problems is that this party, the party that I'm a part of, didn't speak to people who were like me growing up. It, it's code. It's, it's unreflective, unanalyzed code that is racialized. He's talking about people aren't talking to the working class white people of Pennsylvania. And so when people say the working class, that's code for white people. Yeah. You yeah. know, which which itself leads to all kinds of questions about, you know, if if white people are the working class, you know, you have then this kind of 90s again under a democratic administration under President uh, Clinton you have this language of super predators, yeah. which were which was practically overt, but would code for, you know, young black men in particular. Uh, you also had this this language of the welfare queens, quote unquote. These things are not usually thrown around anymore, but similar kind of things, maybe terms of omission, like working class, excludes a certain group, and then therefore creates a space in which people can fill in the blanks, and that's. That's reflective in our language. I think ta Coates does a very, very good job saying that the Democrats and the Republicans, for that matter, because not all Republicans are Trump. You know, we, we do have to acknowledge that every now and then, uh, nor are they Steve Bannon or Steve Miller, these other folks who are overtly racist, misogynist, and, and so forth. They've, they've demonstrated that by their words and their actions. And so those who are more concerned about this it's not sufficient to say the working class, et cetera, et cetera. I think everybody, this is required reading. If there was any way to make, you know, everybody read this, they should. To sort of sum this up before we move on to the close of the show, I just want to make an appeal to my Catholic brothers and sisters. And I want to say, if you look at what Donald Trump is doing and you, you are appreciative of what Donald Trump is doing because you feel like somehow it's going to further the ethic of life or it's going to further the Republican agenda that you have allied yourself with over the past two decades— we're talking about people who are made in the image of God. These are precious brothers and sisters who God has placed God's own image into. And let me just appeal to you at the level of them being maybe baptized Christians who are here in my own parish here on the south side of Chicago. You know, these are people that I worship with, and they are being mistreated in, here in our society. They are being systematically pushed to the margins. They're being disenfranchised, both in terms of vote and in terms of access to economic possibility. And in certain cases, they are being slaughtered. And we as Catholics, whether we disagree about these other political issues, we must agree about that fundamental fact. God has chosen to put God's image in these people, and we must respect and cherish them, if for no other reason than simply because of that. Now, there's a lot of other reasons to respect and cherish these, these people who are being mistreated in our, in our society and who are being mistreated by the rhetoric of politics right now. But if we can't agree on anything else, we simply have to agree about that. And if I can just follow up, too, on that, you know, you, you've named you know, the discrimination and, and the need for solidarity or advocacy on behalf of our, our black sisters and brothers and, and other men and women of color 
who who are facing the, the most overt instances of of uh, racism and discrimination. My my appeal to piggyback on yours is to those who look like me, those who present or identify as white, who occupy other places and vectors of privilege, to not be so defensive. I know what it's like. It's like what you were saying, David, earlier in reading this, that, that there is this kind of defensive mode because we live the lie or we, we perpetuate a lie of meritocracy in this country. You know, you, you know, people just, if you work hard enough, you're going to get it. That's just simply not true. And so my invitation is one of openness, openness to hearing the experiences. You know, you're calling for advocacy on behalf of and solidarity with. I think, you know, that's important, but I think it begins as as James Baldwin has said, and, and God, what a, what a prophetic figure he is. Um, I, I highly recommend I Am Not Your Negro, which was a documentary in his own words that came out recently. Uh, we'll put up a link to that as well. But, you know, the work of, of James Baldwin, of ta Coates, who Toni Morrison has referred to as a 21st century James Baldwin, it, they provide us with opportunities to, if you are like me, like I said, or look like me, to hear the voices if you don't if you if you're not able yet to hear the voices in person of, of your sisters and brothers to hear the experience to have a little glimpse into it because only then do you begin to understand the realities of the world in which we live and the fact that racism and privilege racism and supremacy are two sides of the same coin read the article. That's what we're going to leave you with. And with that, thank you so much for listening to the show. We're going to have more on the bonus segment, but for now, we're going to bring things to a close. The Francis Effect podcast is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, which is part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. Yay, science and religion. Yes. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation, Father Tom Rosica and all of his staff. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us the kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we do appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. And again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis and an F and an X and the word pod. And likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or a comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfxpod at gmail.com. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Dan, thanks for being here. Always a pleasure. And thanks, everybody, for listening.